And we are back up. And we are back up. Thanks for uh, <laughs> that. Was a technical glitch. See, even the even the machine didn't want to hear my stupid explanation for, <laughs> for why, why for we're always analyzing each yeah. other. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, nah, I'm out. You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Casanelli. Thank you. How are you, sir? I am good. It's yeah. almost Friday. It's midweek, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's Wednesday. It's, it's almost Friday. <laughs> well, after Wednesday is Thursday, and you know what after Thursday is? Friday. Thursday is my Friday, so I'm close. Oh, well, there you go. You can't screw this. <laughs> Michael, how are you, sir? I'm good, man. I, I got your positive energy. It is Wednesday, so we're halfway there. <laughs> it just helps. It does help. It does help. Uh, so I should probably introduce you so the audience knows who you are in case they didn't read uh, whatever bio we, it is that we put on, our, um, <laughs> on, the, on the podcasting uh, I didn't read it. Platform. Probably should have. Yeah. Do you know who you are today? <laughs> you do wear two hats, though. I do. At least two. Um, yeah, I am an officer with the Reno Police Department and have been so for coming up on 14 years now. That's um, crazy. I know. Tell me about it. February 2007 is when I was hired. Wow. God, it's this month. Um, and I also am a marriage and family therapist intern in mm-hmm. the state of Nevada here. And that's the more recent development. I've only been doing that for about two years. Tell people what an intern is because that th- that uh, terminology throws people. Terminology. That terminology <laughs> throws people, I think. Oh, fair enough. Um, so an intern is someone who is just beginning their uh, their career in therapy or in related discipline. Uh, They need to be under supervision from a licensed and seasoned clinician, a fully licensed one. So I have the ability to practice marriage and family therapy and and do diagnoses and consultations and treatment plans, but not without oversight and aid from a supervisor. That is a very precise definition. Um, (laughs) You have full ability under the law to mm-hmm. practice within the same scope as a, a licensed, unsupervised person. Uh, and I analogize it to resident doctors. Mm. They're doctors. They get to do everything. Absolutely. Uh, they're practicing under somebody else yep. for the time being. So if you uh, if you see the, the, the title intern after somebody's license, that's what it means. You might also see it uh, listed as associate. Mm. So like uh, other states have it. Um, have it designated as associate. So, but either way, I, I actually think that intern therapy provision, while green, and you don't you don't know everything at that point. You, I mean, you're still accumulating experience. It actually can be quite beneficial because you're surrounded by so many supervisors. Very much so. It's it's <laughs> it's funny because the day you would think that looking forward to the day of being fully licensed would be like the natural relieving day, but really it's nice to have people you can run down the hall and, <laughs> and bang yes. on their door and ask for help from. Yeah, it absolutely is. <laughs> and it's socially accepted. <laughs> right, right, right. 
I don't know where else we would run down the hall and bang on people's doors and <laughs> ask them to talk to him. I guess if, it's a, if there's a fire, <laughs> right, frat, frat house. Frat house. <laughs> a fire in a frat house. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Get out! <laughs> so you're, you started as a cop uh, 14 years ago, like mm-hmm. you mentioned, and then at some point or another you decided therapy. Yeah. Why? Well, I have this cousin... I actually do I, tell <laughs> there, there is a, another therapist in my family. Um, but it, it was manifold. Um, I first sought therapy, mental health therapy for myself when I was 25. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think I was a detective in the family crimes division at the time at work. And as stress does, it kind of insidiously crept up and finding myself overreacting to a lot of things that the stimulus really didn't match the response. Um, mm-hmm. So I ended up seeking out some help and and saw somebody probably about six or seven times. And I, I thought at the time I could use more, but I was 25 and this was a very, very seasoned individual. And they said, no, I think you're good. Um, but it, it did help. It aided to the point that I thought, wow, that's that's something I'd like to do is be on like the, the healing side of things. Because as much as law enforcement officers, first responders generally are helpers, and they are, too many times the situations unfold and we can't be healers. We're more like well, executors of justice. It, it's uh, what I often refer to as symptom treatment. Mm. And certainly symptoms need treating. Uh, but when you're constantly just going from call to call, mm-hmm. uh, arrest, de-escalate, move on, you're not solving the problem. Not addressing it systemically. Correct. Yep. Correct. <laughs> What's fascinating to me, though, is that you're you're young, and young people often don't seek therapy. Uh, it's getting yeah. a little better these days. You're young, and you were in law enforcement, and you still went and got treatment, which is very rare. Yeah, as, I, as you mentioned it now, and I look back on it, that is God for the time, especially with, I think I was not deep enough into the culture yet <laughs> to have had a lot of some of the negative messages about seeking aid that come along with being a, a cop and being a first responder generally. But um, yeah, that was, a. Uh, am not, I'm certainly not congratulating myself or anything, but that was, it was kind of surreal to think about now having sought it then, but it was out of need. It was out of a sense of need. Why? I, go ahead, Mike. No, but so... You know, you hear, especially these days right now with everything that's going on, all the civil unrest and the defund the police stuff and all that, you know, um, a lot of people that don't know anything about law enforcement or maybe have an issue with law enforcement, and they're lumping them in as a whole, mm-hmm. like to some of these 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 characters that have done some really bad stuff. Um, they say things that are you look at the situation and they go, oh, they need more training and de-escalation. They need mental health, this, they need that. What was it like for you? Um, I don't know if you had a family or, you know, cause I always look at it, how many hours in the day are there, right? Like we think that police officers constantly train with their firearms. Like they're constantly training tactical stuff. They're constantly training de-escalation, mental health stuff. You see what I'm saying? Like for you, can you break that down to like, make people understand what uh, an officer goes through or the fact that if they want to go get training, sometimes many times it has to come out of their own pocket. Uh, you know, some officers don't have that luxury. They have a family, kids. Um, I've, I've, I, I think people underestimate what it would take just to, you know, when you say, well, they just need more training or they just need this. Yeah. Training is a, 
it's a very useful concept and in, ultimately it's a single word. <laughs> and it, it represents something that we absolutely, I'll, I'll never say don't have more training because I think you learn, we're speaking about systems. Once you learn a little bit more about exactly what went into something, more the better. I was I was emailing a young lady who's back east and doing a project um, on law enforcement and she was she asked point blank, do you think law enforcement needs more training surrounding mental health? And I shared with her a pretty um, impacting story from my own career as a negotiator, a critical incident negotiator, where we lost someone to suicide right in front of us. And what I, what I took away from that were two pretty powerful things is, number one, and more importantly, I don't know what I don't know. And the second one was don't ever underestimate the power of substances to induce somebody to do something reckless. Um, but to your point, it's like you said, there's only so many hours in the day. I'm glad you mentioned it because sleep is a huge thing for first responders or lack thereof. Um, and you might, a lot of departments have gone to three twelves or four tens. So that means they're able to work three 12 hour shifts in a week. And then they pick up a supplemental shift to make uh, 40 hours in a work week or they do four tens. So that's 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., for instance, at uh, where I work at the police department in Reno. And we we have mandated trainings that we have to do according to legislative law. And those are as much as we'd like them, and they are coming along with regard to mental health. It's a lot of the bare bones stuff. It's firearms, it's driving, it is defensive tactics. Um, we do receive some mental health training, but absolutely to your point, if you want to receive a lot more mental health training, you need to seek it out on your own. And then you need to arrange staffing through your supervisor and staffing, I'm sure, just like a massive provider shortage in the state of Nevada, there is no great plethora of just cops on standby to say, okay, yeah, I'll pick up your shift if you want to go to that week-long 40-hour CIT training that is offered occasionally. Um, and, and that's the pinch everyone is feeling because it's not only on the law enforcement getting time off to go to training side, and then everybody uses this the not excuse, but the reason COVID, for sure that has impacted even teachers' ability and facilitators of training's ability to network with people they even want to train. So not enough hours in anybody's day. Yeah, that just, uh, you know, I, I try to look at it, be objective, and it just, I just don't know where you pick up those hours. I mean, I know what my life is like, <laughs> and I don't have the stress of actually going out into the world and potentially dying, yeah. you know, which is what, what you do because you get put in weird situations, situations that aren't the norm, unless you create those norms in your own household, um, or go seeking them. You know, it's just, it's, it's tough, man. I, I feel, I feel for any officer because I I've known a lot and I, I ask these questions and the reason I do, and I've to this day, like it's always been the same thing. It's, it's like, I'm blown away by how people act like it's just so easy. They have the answer from their couch. Like, this is what they need, you know? And it's yep. like, okay, so let's just say that we, we, we agreed to get it to the officers, right? Like we agree on this. Where does that come from? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, where does that money come from? You know, it's just. It, money is the answer. What's the question? Yeah, exactly. So I think a good analogy for as far as the training and, and new tools goes is a, a police officer's belt. It literally used to be, well, there was a time when they didn't wear even radios on their hips, not too long ago, but within the century. But now it used to be radios, handcuffs, um, perhaps a nightstick and a gun and some magazines. And now it's a gun, two magazines, perhaps a rifle magazine, tourniquets, tasers, two sets of handcuffs, flashlights, radios, 
we're this is another conversation about you know the back injuries but <laughs> we won't get into that today but i think analogizing at that is we have steadily and and it's our fault as well for not saying for not addressing not necessarily saying no but not addressing the proper answer to a lot of mental health concerns we've just been saying yes over the years we've been taking on new responsibilities We've become social workers, amateur psychologists, couples counselors, babysitters sometimes, parental coaches, and that's just to name a couple of the things that... Animal control. Animal control. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Animal control, traffic control. Yeah. So I think, Yeah. I, I was hanging out with the guys from Metro one day, um, and one of them had just come from a, a mass shooter, a staged mass shooter training drill. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, you know, it's just like I, I just thought about how many police officers were at that drill because they were kind of talking about it. They were it, it was it was cool. I was getting a chance to see behind the curtain of some some police work, you know, like how they train for these things. And they were talking about what they did wrong or what could have been done better. And I'm like, that in itself was hours. Yeah. Had been hours. Hours and know? hours of preparation of of staffing. <laughs> you have people putting it on. Yeah. Something you mentioned that I don't want to ignore is you ticked off the the legislatively required trainings and this is true of all professionally licensed peoples anywhere you go if you have a professional license whether it's to cut hair construct bridges treat couples and families enforce the law whatever it is um you're required by law to maintain your competence Mm -hmm. and the interesting thing is these licensing boards of which i was a part for a period of time are only interested in, in minimum competence Right, which is very, very unique <laughs> yeah. and and strange. And then the professional ethic behind that is that you go up higher than that. You yeah. become better than just the minimum. The hope. <laughs> so one of the ways that we maintain minimum competence is we we require people to attend coursework throughout the cor- their their careers. Mm. And upon relicensing or renewal, you have to present evidence that you did whatever the governing body says you should do. I will speak to marriage and family therapists and clinical professional counselors in the state of Nevada only because that's the board I chaired. We are required to have 40 every two years because our licenses renew biennially, which is essentially 20 a year if you're doing it well. But nobody does. They cram it all at the end and they get their 40 credits in December before their license expires, December 31. <laughs> and uh, that's not true of everybody, but it, but it, it does happen. Um and of those 40 credits, six have to be in ethics, four have to be in suicide prevention, and if you're a supervisor, two of them have to be in supervision. Two two hours. Uh, two one hours. Two one hours in yeah. two years. And Yeah. Okay. So what that leaves is if you do the math, uh, six minus four minus two is 28. So you get you have 28 now required hours. There is a push now to add on more training hours for things like cultural competence. Mm-hmm. Sounds great on premise, but you're you're either adding more hours to the requirements, so you're going from 40 to something else, or you're diminishing the amount of elector elected hours yeah. that you can do. So that leaves very little room if somebody wants to be an expert in trauma therapy to go do their trauma work because they're too busy chasing down mm. suicide intervention, which, by the way, for us is like telling Emeril Lagasse that he has to relearn how to butter toast every year. 
we're literally the people who go to the suicide interventions, right? Like that's, we're the trainers of everybody else who does suicide intervention. Right. It's our profession, but they're, but we're state mandated to have suicide training. It's amazing. Um, ethics fine with that. Okay. Cultural diversity. Man, now we're getting a little squirrely because what you're doing is you're inherently inviting in people who teach these things mm-hmm. and the state is, become a pipeline and an avenue by which those teachers can make money. Yep. So then you're inviting in special interests and somebody says, you know what's really important? Bipolar disorder training. I think your legislature should adopt bipolar or your licensing board or whatever it is, bipolar disorder training. And they come out with, and, the, and there's evidence for this, and there's evidence for adolescent training and um, elderly training. And I, I mean, we th- the list is non-exhaustive. Well, sure. Name the topic and sure. somebody's an expert and we'll charge you to Somebody decided <laughs> what it. was important and somebody decided that ethics was important and suicide intervention was important and supervision was important. And now we're talking about cultural diversity as being important. Well, where does it end? Great question. But I'm going to kick it back to you because you ticked off some of the things that ostensibly our legislature said were important. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Emergency vehicle operations, firearms, defensive tactics. Mm -hmm. But tell me, and I think I know the answer, having been raised in the household full of cops (laughs) that you were. Um, I'm the cousin, by the way, that he referenced, if nobody (laughs) could pick up on that. Uh, what percentage of your actual day to t- remove special uh, divisions out of it, like robbery, homicide? You sit behind a desk and study things all day, right? They, they're not even on the street. Sure. Random street cops. What percentage of the day or car- year or career do you actually spend driving fast, using <laughs> your firearm, or employing defensive tactics? I'm, uh, As opposed to right. <laughs> anything else we could require of you, like, say, de-escalation. Right. Um, I, I don't laugh to make light of the importance of any of the topics. I laugh because you're absolutely on the nose. It is, we, the one thing we do more than anything is talk to people constantly. And for the most part, we're talking to people in their day of crisis, in the day when they found a moment in time where they didn't believe, whether objectively true or not, they didn't believe they could handle their own problem at the time. And they summoned a, a third party that's you know, representative of the, the state <laughs> or the man or the government, whatever you want to. <laughs> the jackboot. The jackboot. Um, I have been called a Nazi many times. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a time in their life when they're seeking aid. And you are absolutely right. I would say if, if I had to put a percentage on it, in my personal case, and I've, I worked in 14 years, I've probably been on patrol about nine of those. I've had a couple special assignments and 10%, if that, if that driving fast, uh, luckily I've never had to be in a shooting. I'm very thankful for it. Um, but being a negotiator, being a street cop, being um, someone who is trained additionally in mental health, all we do is try and resolve people's crisis of the day. Wouldn't it make more sense if we replaced some of those or at least alternated years on trainings. See, to me, it seems like a more of a, a liability protection issue and a cover your ass issue because mm. I'm thinking about my own licensing board. It makes zero sense to put us through mandated ethics and suicide training annually. None. Yeah. It's already adopted by reference into our uh, into law through our ethics code anyway that we have to maintain professional competence in those areas. We have to know ethics. Wouldn't it make more sense if you're going to require continuing ed credit for marriage and family therapists that they do marriage and family therapy continuing. Oh, I mean, I like, know. you know, get better at systemic thinking, something like that. And like, <laughs> what, 
How often do I do a suicide intervention in the office? Don't go on making Never. sense now. Like it's Don't be the logic police. <laughs> yeah, well, silly me. This is what we do with podcasts, though. We, we solve the world's problems in long form. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, to, to, to this overall point, there's the, we're short of hours. We're short of time. And then we ask the people who are ostensibly supposed to be you know, taking these extra trainings to sacrifice their time to do it. Mm-hmm. In my profession, yours now, too, because you wear two hats, to go do more trainings means I literally have to take appointments off the calendar. Mm-hmm. I'm taking money out of my pocket yeah. to go pay somebody to train me because the state decided that it was important. Like, what? How, how is that an incentive to go learn more? It's incentive for the trainer. It sure is. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the state maybe should be providing those trainings. Um, at least <laughs> for you guys, as I understand it, you still you still get your pay, right? Yes. Because you're, you're required to go get the trainings? Yeah. Nobody pays us. Yeah. Yeah. They they do flex time. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, – oh, go ahead, Mike. You look like you're uh, – How much range time do you get with your firearm and how much is required? I know it's different from each department, right? Like, yeah. the, I'm just curious. Like, this is – I want people at home to hear <laughs> – you Four know. times a year, quarterly. Okay. Which, for something as as liability driven and as high optics, as high negative optics as uh, an involvement with a firearm could be, I don't think that's enough either. <laughs> I mean, right. if it were me, it would be a monthly a monthly duty at least. But it's uh, they usually range from two to three hours, sometimes four, if there's scenarios involved. Four times a year. Same, okay. Same with defensive tactics. You're gonna be on the hook for that now. Brandon Casanelli of the Reno Police Department said on the <laughs> Guns and Mental Health podcast that this was insufficient training. Therefore, you guys are liable as a city for this shooting. <laughs> They're going to be liable anyway. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. and that is it, it, fully it, it, my opinion. Just you know, for the record, yeah. I do think we need right more here. training. <laughs> yeah. We're trying to get you fired, bro. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, "That's fine. I have a backup crew." Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that that is something that that kind of fascinates me because that answer very. It's definitely different from department to department, and some departments have more money for more training, and other ones don't. And you know, there's a few that I was kind of blown away that when I heard the answer, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, it's just one of those things that I think you know people don't understand when they're emotionally charged and they're angry at, at a police officer that did something, and then you know how many times have we seen this this argument that police officers are the only ones who had should have that type of gun because they're the ones trained in it? It's like no, they're not. <laughs> no, I, and I would again, this is totally my conjecture, but I would I would venture to guess that a lot of enthusiasts who do this electively on their own time train more than we do. Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah, for sure, because 100%. it's a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know how many police officers have a the hobby of firearms. Probably a handful. Some, um, but you're going to be interested in doing something that doesn't look like work typically, right? right? (laughs) The chef who doesn't want to go home and cook for their family. Right. Uh, I want to circle back to the uh, circle back. That's a popular meme these days. Circle back Uh, as many times as you want. (laughs) Just keep circling. Uh, (laughs) God, I just got it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We're not going to talk about space force though. Um, So back to the, the stigma. Let's talk about what, Real conversation. I don't name names, but um, real conversations that happen at the department, um, in the parking lot before you go on duty, in the locker room, at lunch break, whatever it is, about people who are struggling with one thing or another. And 
I know you're in a different role now yeah. and your ears will hear it differently, but speak a little bit to the response to conversation with somebody's like, ah, the old ball and chain at home has me, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, sounds like marriage difficulties. Right. Um, yeah. or man, these, uh, these uh, insert judgmental comment here about people you deal with in the, in the line of duty. Um, that's not a mentally healthy state to be right. So, no. so when people are opining these things, how does the, how does the interaction go with like, Hey, do you ever think to, you know, go see a counselor or take up a professional counseling service or, you know, get, go get therapy. Does that even happen? Has it changed? Where are we? I like to think it has changed because my job was put into the job I have now with the department was put into place on purpose to change point. it. Yeah. About what? About a year and a half now? Has it been? Yeah. Uh, August of Longer? 19 is when I started. Almost. Just about a year and a half. Yeah. Almost two years. Yeah. Oh yeah. August. Okay. Yeah. A year and a half. Yeah. Um, but traditionally, yes, it's, uh, and we're not talking about a long time ago, traditionally. We're talking within the last five years. Right. Um, That's just this department, too, which is yeah. pretty progressive yeah. in its community-oriented policing, its um, its uh, training, its insertion of CIT into the academy. Yeah. Like, the, like not everybody across the country does that. No, that's very true. Um, historically, traditionally, the response usually would have been, go get – wait, what, what words can I use on this podcast? <laughs> hmm. I'm choking on my ice. I make for good radio. All of them use all the words. It was go get your shit handled, mm-hmm. and and it wasn't it wasn't like supportive, backed up. Here's some options for said shit. It was what I like to call it. What I've labeled it, and this is something I've been researching for a while. I, I did my master's thesis also in the co-occurrence of alcohol use disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder in first mm-hmm. responders, and coming across it, there's a huge huge stigma thing. I I like to view it under social identity theory, where the culture is necessary. You you absolutely need to rely on, some people call it warrior culture. I like to call it capable culture. Um, the analogy I use with regard to the response you would get when someone says, oh, I'm having trouble at home or trouble in marriage. We, I like to use the alcohol analogy. Some is okay. A lot is not. Um, uh-huh. And in first responder culture, the capability aspect comes in very firmly because alcohol is also a big part of the culture and it's great and it's involved and you start to get more and more involved with it. And suddenly when the one person who can't handle it, say through a DUI or a domestic violence call or just a a general bad press event where alcohol is involved, suddenly they are weak, can't handle it, can't take it. Oh, you can't hold your liquor. Incapable. Yep. It is binary. It becomes on off capable or not. So it's less about a fear of going and getting counseling and more about a fear of being judged as insufficient. Yes. Which there are legitimate Mm. reasons and concerns for that for everyone, for ourselves and the public, because we need healthy, uh, capable, strong uh, cops who are taking care of themselves. So there is an actual fitness for duty component that should never, ever be taken off the table. Service to the public has to come first. Have you ever seen or known anyone personally that you knew was hiding something to not, you know, be judged or yes. I mean, maybe it wasn't your place to say something, right? Maybe that was just your opinion. And you, I'm not saying you have to throw anyone under the bus. I'm just saying, have you ever seen it where you're like, you shouldn't be out there. So has, has Jake Field, you know what my, my job is at the department now? I was going to ask that at some point um, because I think it's very cool and, and we have a listening audience across the country who may take this and go, oh, that's neat. We, we should try to implement that where, you know, where we are. So, yes, please do. If this is a good segue for that, go ahead. Yeah, it, 
It's uh, it's ironic that you ask that there because my role now full time at the department with regard um, with my mental health training, my graduate training, my licensure is I don't do counseling for my my coworkers and peers, but I do I do peer work, I do psychoeducation, we do group decompressions and stresses. My whole job is focused on improving mental health at the department and in the city. We uh, we liaise with the Northern Nevada Peer Support Network as well, so it's not just police that I'm referencing. We all kind of try and work together to lower stigma, get people more engaged, up to and including finding therapists that we trust that are culturally competent. Um, and I promise I'm answering your question. I'm just taking a lot longer to do it. Um, so full time, that's that's what I do. I am literally the person to go to with regard to what do I do on my worst day, because we. Man, we see a lot of trauma. We see a lot of critical incidents that um, I think it was the Ruderman Foundation's white paper on first responder suicide. They did a comparison um, and I believe they quoted and this again, if I'm quoting it wrong, I apologize. It's a good article. You can find it at their website. I think the average human being like in a lifespan will be will take part in about five critical incidents in their lives traffic accidents that threaten their lives, perhaps a violent encounter with somebody, something near death. Um, and the average first responder in a small to medium police agency in 25 years, not their entire lifespan, will see almost 200. And I think that mm. number's low. That's got to be low. I think it is. And I think part of its minimization on our part, too, very much back to the point of not wanting to look weak, not well, wanting and, to look and, incapable. And, and defining what a critical incident is, like, you know, watching two people beat the snot out of each other in the front yard is, is not a critical incident. It's like, yeah, it is. <laughs> to most people, that's it that is. You, you'll never see that. Yeah. Um, so to, to answer your question, all told, yeah, I, I still see people, um, even in my job now, even in my role now, where it literally, it's confidential by statute to speak to me, not as a, a counselor, but as a peer, as a law enforcement peer, and people still are so reticent. They, they are so afraid to come forth because there's a worry about capability. The, um, the Washoe County Sheriff's Office has lost two people to suicide within the last month. And even now, I coordinated with our chief to put out in our email, in our department-wide email, you are not going to be fired if you need help. You are not going to be shunned. You're not going to be judged. Please, we'd rather you sought help beforehand. And there's still a lot of hesitation. So, yeah, I, I, can, I can imagine. And that's, you know, what Mental Health America likes to call before stage four, right? Is like, get help before stage four, right. you know, try to keep that in mind but then if you're if you're leery or you don't trust or you can't take that chance like i could lose my career i don't know anything but else but this i can't go become a carpenter i can't you know i i, I this is my life that's yeah, a tough one you know it's uh yeah the identity is a huge part of it like you just said this is my life yeah yeah i think what's really frustrating is that we expect immediate results by an email right that's corporate america kind of pushes that it's like the boss sent an email respond but also our instant gratification culture which i can't i can't bang on enough because of its massive broad influence in everything we do i don't think we give it enough credit for how it's tainted the way that we uh view expectations now so we're like well we put this embedded resource officer in that's your title right that is um a year and a half ago how come the culture hasn't changed it's like well <laughs> The culture of law enforcement's been around for a couple hundred years, yeah. and you've been practicing this particular version of it for at least fifty or sixty. Yeah, um, we didn't get here overnight. So, 
it's really hard to t- to preach patience to people and say slow and steady, slow and steady, slow and steady. Eventually, in twenty, get your eyeballs on twenty years, not two. And when we look back, we'll say, "Wow, cool! Look what we did." Um, this is a it's a really tough one, but that that drumbeat has to be consistent. Yeah. So let me ask you this, and this might be, I don't even know if you've considered this. You probably have because your brain goes a million miles an hour like mine does. <laughs> um, you want to accumulate contact hours so you can get your full license, which means you got to see patients at some point somewhere. Who comes in behind you at the department to continue the culture shift? I have thought about that. And, it, it and even, me even at bare night. minimum, you're not, you're not, you're going to retire at some point anyway, right? Right. You know? It, it definitely, it keeps me up at night. It really does because um, as important as this is to me, I fear giving it to somebody else. And that's my own, some of my own stuff, but some sure. of it I also think is is realistic to go, okay, what does the succession plan look like? The good, and I don't mean to be all doom and gloom because there is a lot of good change too. Um, since beginning about a year and a half ago, easily myself, and this is not our whole peer support team. We have about 30 members on our peer support team now, but just my contacts exceed 100, 150 probably of people who will reach out and say, hey, and it could be, I've, I've seen people looking for sleep study answers. Um, people asking about medication. I say, huh, I'm, I'm not the one to ask about meds. I can give you general stuff, but that's what a, that's what an MD yeah. is for or a psychiatrist. Um, but sometimes people just want to know where to go with regard to something for their cousin's kid. Now, granted, that could still be the asking for a friend, yeah. <laughs> but um it is changing. The culture is changing for the positive. Good. I don't, um, as of now, I, there's a couple people who have expressed interest in like what, what I do. So, sorry, I'm doing air quotes. I know it's hard to see through a microphone. Um, we may post this to YouTube. We'll see. Okay. Um, there are a few people who are very interested in mental health like me, and I'm trying to unashamedly push them into going to get their license as well. <laughs> good. No, that's good. We, this is how we expand the profession too. Mm. Um, we create new opportunities. It wasn't that it wasn't that long ago that we didn't have people in any facilities that didn't look like Zephyr Wellness um, or a hospital uh, or working for the county. It, you know, there were no social workers in schools. There was no school-based mental health. There was no uh, embedded resource officer in the police department. Now we're seeing human resource departments at major companies at least outsource to have people come in for office hours, yeah. uh, which is great. And that was. That was very, very bizarre thinking when I was going through school, which was 10 years ago. Mm. Um, You're old. Like, yeah, yeah <laughs> Sorry, but I'm I kidding. look good, which is important. <laughs> um, but things like social media, you know, and, and the promulgation of, uh, you know, breaking down traditional barriers to improve care access, I think has nor- helped normalize the conversation. More podcasts, obviously. Um, <laughs> so th- so there are good things that are, that are happening, and I, and I really appreciate that. Are you seeing a willingness then to follow through or are people still dabbling in it with regard to culture change? Yeah. Like, like coming forward and actually getting help as opposed to mm. talking about getting, talking about wanting to get help. Think stages of change, right? And I can yeah. explain that in a minute if we want. <laughs> I'm going to give you the, the penultimate therapist answer. It, it depends. depends. <laughs> <laughs> or lawyer answer. I don't know which one it works yeah. best for. Um, it is case by case. And that is where connecting somebody with a peer, just like in civilian life, peers are vital. They're yeah. crucial because they're, they're, they have inborn trust. They have lived experience that's similar and they usually have, have the, um, what's the right word for it? 
I, trust is fine as far, as far as that goes. They, they have the trust of their colleagues to be like, oh, maybe when they tell me this answer, it's something I should listen to and follow through on. Um, the change itself is, it's getting better too. I mentioned Washoe County Sheriff's Office and, and before their, their horrific month of January, they were already putting in place a licensed mental health clinician who is a civilian in this case, um, not a sworn officer like myself, but who is going to do minimum 20 hours a week at the sheriff's office just for their people. Great. Just for their sworn. Yeah. And that, that, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, do you, <laughs> is there any pushback from, say, you know, officers who are like, this? I got to go talk to this person that totally doesn't understand what I do on the, the reg? <laughs> so they, uh, they put the job announcement out, and I know they have purposefully tried to whittle down folks who have that sort of expertise and experience, um, folks who, have, who are culturally competent. They may not necessarily be a sworn officer. Maybe they're former, though. They could be retired. Um, they could have worked in another first response profession or been a medical professional beforehand. Um, yeah. So I think they're, they're being very careful on purpose to get somebody who doesn't, <laughs> who does fit the bill and, yeah, who isn't going to be avoided just because of their personal history that, or their professional history. Is that Maggie? Is that going to be Maggie Dixon? No. Oh, okay. Somebody else then. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- there's a lot, you know, when I started the organization and I started talking to, to different groups of people, it was really interesting to hear like the first responders for the, you know, the, you saw the things that vets go through. Um, I remember um, the black community, right. Uh, people coming to me going, Hey, look, black gun owners and, and people from underprivileged underserved communities, we don't trust mental health at all. We don't even go get mental health. Like that's a, that's a thing. Does that, is that even the same for minority officers inside of the department? Man, you- I, I do not want to speak for that <laughs> just because I don't understand it as much as far as like their personal and professional experiences go. Um, I'm just saying, have you ever seen it? Like have you ever, you know, I mean, uh, we see it in movies, right? There was a Kevin Hart movie where the, his wife said, hey, we need to go get therapy. And he said, baby, we don't get therapy. We're black. We go to the barbershop. <laughs> right. Um, you know. What I can speak to is um, how genders affected it. And that's, again, just anecdotally, as far as in my professional experience in this role, women have it twice as hard. They really, really do. Because traditionally, women seek therapy and counseling more frequently. And that's socially more accepted than men in the general population. However women are also expected to, they're scrutinized way, way more when they're law enforcement officers. Mm. So if they seek help, then it's sadly reinforcing a lot of terribly held stereotypes that people have of, well, see, you couldn't hack it anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I never even thought about that, man. Yeah. They're, <laughs> they were up against it. <laughs> I feel for them. So in Metro, I know that they do this uh, really comprehensive program, and I'm just I'm I'm going to pull numbers from the air, and I don't even know if they're accurate, but it's something like if you're if you're involved in a critical incident, um, especially if it's an officer-involved shooting, you're you're on the beach for six months before you even like get to try to come back, and you're getting therapy that whole time, and they pay for it and whatnot, and they got big budgets, and and we can debate the merits of such a thing, uh, and then they have this prog- program where they put you through s- a similar incident, and mm-hmm. they debrief, and it's very, very long, and it could be up to a year before you start working again, um, and I know there's, there's some detractors who suggest very legitimately that that's not good because... People need to work, right? They right. don't need to just be paid to sit at home and heal. And then you got this top-down overlord kind of thing that says, uh, uh, you must be sick. And it's like, well, actually, no, I have a really good resilience because right. of whatever my history was. Not everybody uh, experiences things the same way. But 
is there a movement up here, at least, uh, I don't know if across the metropolitan area among agencies or within certain departments to do something like that, where it makes it more okay mm. to come forward and then you don't have to worry. It's not just an email that says, Hey, you're not going to lose your job, but there's actual teeth to it that says, not only won't you lose your job, we're going to make sure that you're well taken care of before you resume. Yeah. And then what does a fitness for duty filter matrix exam eval look like? So traditionally, I keep using that word, um, within the preceding decades (laughs) at the department, it's from the time when our dad started, it was so go back to work. It was okay. You were in, you, you may have just taken somebody's life. Why are you telling me about it? Right. So it has moved and we have had a lot more, um, formalized uh, structures where they would have two weeks off, they would get a fitness for duty exam, they would requalify with a firearm, just the kind of the boilerplate stuff. Um, And I use the term grassroots, but really, I mean, we don't have any money. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) we do have a grassroots led effort that um, one of our officers who had been involved in a couple shootings himself and saw a difference between his own recovery from the first and the second, he approached me and he and I and members of our command staff and some volunteers, including our peer support team, are doing total credit where credit's due. This is from the Edmonton Police Service. It's called reintegration. Um, And you described it pretty well with regard to the Vegas model. Um, We don't really have the luxury to have somebody off for six months unless there's a problem. Um, But what we are doing is personalizing someone's return to work. Um, it consists of critical incident stress debriefings, like, and they're not mandatory, but they're highly encouraged, um, so that people can get every perspective from, from case call incident itself from dispatch on down. Oh, neat. Um, and then we, I will go usually with one of their peer supporters and the person involved in the incident back to the scene and we'll walk it. Wow. We'll walk it together. They are allowed to just kind of smell things, see things, take it all in. And if they decide to volunteer or bring something back up, that's kind of where I step in and go, that's normal. That's a normal trauma response. And it's okay that you're, right. that you perceive that table as being five feet away instead of literally up in your face. Cause traumatic memory is different from regular memory. It is. Um, and then if they need additional time off or if they need additional referrals, follow up connections with counselors, medication in some cases, that's where we're, we're personalizing it to each person. Some people, and, and there's a gentleman who's at our department who wanted to be back at work 10 days after a shooting because that's how he makes meaning in his life. Mm-hmm. He does it through service. It's just part of his makeup. Other people need three weeks. They might need two months. It just, it's, again, it depends case yeah. by case. That's a, that's a really neat program. Um, mm-hmm. we, and I love how you, you walk him through the scene. What, you, what you're essentially doing there is you're, you're desensitizing or, or resensitizing maybe in, in some cases. And um, there's great literature that supports that that's a, that's a very valuable exercise. Uh, we had um, Eddie Davenport on who's a social work student. He's about to graduate in North Carolina. Mm. And then uh, – he didn't share this on our podcast, but he shared it on Noggin Notes, which is the, the mental health podcast that I host. And he talked about his own post-traumatic stress disorder history and how the incident that uh, created this distress response in him was at a it was it had to do with traffic accident and he and every time he he went by the intersection it was like flashbacks. Like he, yeah. he purposely avoided certain areas yep. and, and and I think taking somebody and, and intentionally walking him back through and, and reintroducing them to the thing is, is, is really important. I think that's, that's really great. In a way that's focused on their health. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's not just, you know, shoving your nose in it and saying, you know, here, get over it. Um, did you have something? Sorry. I I actually, I do have a question. It's kind of 
you know, veering into another direction, but it has to do with partners, hmm. right? Um, what I've always been curious of how people get paired up <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, when you look at, when you look at even take the George Floyd incident, I thought you were going to say Nick Nolte and oh God, Eddie, Murphy. Eddie Murphy, Eddie Mur- another 48 hours. I mean, clearly I've learned all the movies, so I, I have some sort of, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you're good. We got him from prison. No, um, uh, you know, I, that incident, the George Floyd incident, right? And when you when they released more of the footage later, much later, right? And you saw how the police officers were talking to each other and talking to other people. Yeah. Um, I was always curious about like how does how does that work? Um, how, how does like you know how do you how do they match people up? What if your personalities are completely different? Or you know, I think about like I wouldn't want to be with a guy who's you know, you, you take the movie Colors, right? Like, and use that. You had the Duvall character and you had the Sean, Sean Penn, Penn character. And the <laughs> Sean Penn character was a nut. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And Duvall knew the ropes and he knew the game. How does it work? How does it work? Like, wh- what are your thoughts on that? And and are we making strides in like, you know, I don't know how you guys feel about disc personality tests, but are we, are we making strides in trying to figure out who is compatible with another person or, <laughs> you know, what type of personalities aren't? <laughs> um. So it is, it's dependent on the unit. So, uh, so it depends. It depends <laughs> at, uh, at Reno PD. Anyway, our patrol officers are singled up. They don't have partners. Um, certain units do have them like our gang unit has them. Our bike unit has partners. And a lot of times you will see those relationships form themselves. If there is a, it's, it's usually like a, okay, go ahead and pair up. If there's going to be an issue, whether performance or personality, that's when they kind of step in and intervene and say, what do we need to do to make sure that both of you are productive? Are they like team captains? (laughs) Um, I pick you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to say no, but I'm sure there are definitely stronger personalities who (laughs) leaders of people. (laughs) Um, At least at Reno, I don't know if they're doing anything. I would, I would say no, just to be safe as far as doing personality level analyses to see who matches with who well. Um, when there is a problem, it makes itself pretty apparent. Like a lot of things in life, when, you, when you're forced into a certain assignment or in a, into a certain role, or standing or sitting in a car with somebody, sharing an Uber, <laughs> you, you, or in an elevator, you figure out pretty quick whether or not you would want to be outside the elevator with them. We don't have the luxury, right? I mean, we just don't have the, the bodies, the personnel, the resources to... So, you know, it's like nope. everybody takes a disc, and then all of a sudden you find that, oh crap four of our 18 people are actually compatible with one another like well that's a problem right is is sorry go ahead no i was just saying that that disc personality test blew me away i'd never even heard of it until i was like invited to go watch metro take a course um and they were kind of presenting that and um someone said hey you should take one they they used to require this at my job and it was for a safe company. It wasn't even for, you know, you were a safe cracker. And then I was like, someone's been reading my diary. Like how did they get this information about me? You know, it was so how, how many diagnoses did you pull out of there for yourself? Uh, yeah. I, I don't remember. I just remember going, how did they know all this about me? Like, how did they figure this out from those questions? Right. Like, and, and it said like, Hey, I can be matched up with this, this personality. Or that personality, and I have trouble with this. Um, I just, I was kind of blown away by it. I, I don't understand. For me, and maybe you guys can answer that. I don't understand why they don't do that. Probably time, money, and and uh, staffing, right. resources. <laughs> the usual answers. Um, the the bodies thing that you mentioned is 
and not to toot my own horn, but as as busy as I have been for the last year and a half in this role, uh, my chief still had to fight city council a little bit, not a lot, to say, hey, why don't we have somebody doing mental health full time for our first responders because of shortage of staffing. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what drives me up the wall with this defund the police nonsense. And it is nonsense. There's no there's no third opinion about that. It's either you 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 want to fund the people who I'm not I'm accepting libertarian anarchism, right? For, for a second like okay, there's a, there's a there's a philosophical reason not to have uh people throwing other people in cages. Okay, I get that. But the 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 idea that we would take away funding for the police when the very argument is that they're not trained well enough or there's not enough of them <laughs> is completely nonsensical and is a non-starter. You made that leap in logic too, huh? So, yeah. So I get to, I get some room to talk because I am one of the people who trains in de-escalation mm. in our academy. And I've been doing it for three years now for free. Why for free? We don't have funding. Mm-hmm. So that's out of the goodness of my heart. I enjoy it. It's a passion of mine. I, like I said, come from a household full of cops, family full of cops. Um, I think it's useful and I think it, it bears merit and fruit in the community as well. Because if mm-hmm. you have better trained people to negotiate tough situations and everyone goes home safely, we all win. So of yes. course I'm going to do this. However, I'm one person. And I am one of the only people I know, if not the only, who is the who has the luxury to take time away from his job to go do that because his salary is still generated yeah, that's by rare. his employees. It's very the rare. rest of us in this community who have that who have the talent to train are spending their time generating revenue for themselves and their families. Mm-hmm. And if you take time away from that, you lose revenue. So it's a, it's a double whammy. Yep. So we either need to start compensating people so that Jake Wiskirchen doesn't do it the rest of his life because he can't. Because my life will expire at some point, <laughs> um, or we get fresh blood in, right? Because I don't, I don't have the market cornered on how to like talk to people. Yield theory is great, emotional functioning is great. There might be something else out there. I don't sure. know. Yeah, but somebody's got to dip into their pockets and pay for people like me, and and I, me, like y'all, us. <laughs> there's a whole bunch of us during that course of that week, and I would say probably forty percent, maybe fifty percent of the CIT week is actually done by current law enforcement officers. Yeah. They're they're not the they're great at what they do. They're negotiators like you are, but they're they're not specifically trained in this stuff. Do, yeah. go teach go teach hostage negotiation, but don't teach mental illness. Right. Like what? How 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 is Kurt supposed to stand in on that? He does. Mm-hmm. He's great at it. Mm-hmm. But dude, come on, man. Well, and like, thinking from a liability standpoint too, wouldn't you rather have somebody who is licensed in the discipline totally. teaching the people? Totally. In the discipline? Totally. So uh, yeah, that's that's my own horn, and I, I get to toot it from time to time um, because I am proud of what I do, and I don't want a, a pity party, and I'm certainly not advocating to pat my own wallet. That 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 couple hundred bucks or whatever that I'd make doing it is not not worth you know all the the credibility that I've gained over the years just to go whine about something in the steps of city hall. It is critical, however, if they want somebody beyond the volunteers yeah they got to pay them they got to compensate them at least for their time if not you know pay them well and then have an active pool from which to draw um i do have a shirt that says fund the police on it and i do wear it from time to time <laughs> not as some sort of political flag but to start the conversation and say you oh, know how come you're wearing that well let me tell you yeah i give my time away for free and there's not too many of me out there. If you if you want somebody other than me, you better pay, be prepared to pay them. <laughs> so we need more funding. But I want to come back a little bit to that um, 
concept of the bat belt, <laughs> the ever augmenting oh, yeah. bat belt. Uh, it's a great metaphor, and I never thought about that because uh, you do have all this stuff, mm. and then like the more it grows, the the less space you have on your back to sit down in the, <laughs> in the car <laughs> on yeah. a chair to do your notes. <laughs> um, but you're asked to be all these roles. And some of the discussion during the uh, a very very good lucrative discussion I think was dur- during the defund the police movement it was a real critical analysis of what are we asking our police to do right and I'm curious to know because I want to kind of dovetail this into magic wand time like what <laughs> how can how can the we if really only solve- days yeah yeah um, what do we do to to return law enforcement officers to their job of just enforcing the law so they don't have to be all these different things you you said it earlier and i i hate to say it but i think it's going to take a lot of change in american culture mm-hmm. the the um expectational culture and distress tolerance is in my again just my opinion for the record <laughs> disclaimer <laughs> I think distress tolerance. This is opinions, opinions, my own uh, retweets do not equal <laughs> endorsement. <laughs> um, I think distress tolerance is at a pretty much all time low. I agree. And um, there's a there was a funny of the many memes that were going around at the time of defund the police. One was defund the police? Question mark Really? You can't even go talk to your neighbor to ask them to turn the music down. Uh, I didn't see that one. That's a good one, though. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> it's uh, and again, some of it we are victims of saying yes for decades and decades of okay, yeah, we'll take care of that. Okay, yeah, we'll take care of that. Okay, yeah, we'll handle that too. Um, what's the answer? Putting more money into things like so. There's co-respond with regard to mental health calls. That is a, another huge, huge topic. We're gonna have Christy on for most, and yeah. a guy named Ryan Lane from uh, Colorado who does the same thing. Awesome. On another podcast, yeah, we've already got him scheduled. This should be a really good show. But de- tell, tease it up. Tell, tell us about it. Um, so other other states do co-responder models that don't have law enforcement involved in mental health calls. Mm. There are exceptions, of course, with regard to active danger, someone these armed, things like that, threats to others. Um, but Arizona specifically, and this is where I'm referencing crisis now, they will have a therapist and a peer riding in a car together, going mm-hmm. to uh, lower level mental health calls or crises that don't involve like threats to others or the potential for, there's always potential, but a lot of potential for harm. And they've been operating under that model for years. Um, is that like a community service officer who goes out, takes a report, uh, you know, barking dog calls? Like we don't need a, we don't need a law enforcement officer sworn, you know, post-certified go deal with a barking dog, right? Mm-hmm. Same type of ding, 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 thing. <laughs> ding. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, specifically directed toward answering mental health calls, but not necessarily having a sworn officer go if gotcha. it's not, if it's not necessary. Does that save money and uh, avoid role conflation or, or is it just as expensive? Like, cause we're still hiring people with, you know, fringe and all that stuff. According to the folks that are selling the model, and they do have numbers to back it up, they've saved miles driven, um, money mm-hmm. and salaries, because it's it, it's not cheap to pay a licensed therapist and a full-time cop right. to go to a mental health call for 45 minutes. Not, not what they're worth anyway. <laughs> right. 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 And But so peers um, at the time, or at least now, who they're licensed to be like peer, repo- peer re- what's the word? Peer support recovery specialists. 
what's the official title? Peer support recovery. Yeah. Okay. Peer support um, recovery. They have a license as well. They have to pass certain exams, but they definitely don't cost as much as a full-time sworn officer. So right there, you have some savings mm-hmm. with regard to salaries. Um, there are a lot of future protected savings as well. So when you think about it, if you have a, an officer and a mental health clinician, like the most team going to something and they're speaking to someone who's having a mid-level crisis, I, I'm not ranking anybody's day as far as who's who's worse and who's mm-hmm. is tougher. And then there's a call of a shooting two blocks away. They have to leave that person where they mm-hmm. are. They have to. It's, it's sad and a lot of reality is not very kind many times, but that has to take priority then and there. All I am saying is when a law enforcement officer is there, their priorities might shift. If you have somebody who is a peer and a clinician and their whole job is that person then and there, odds are they're going to get a better solution connected with case management. Oh, sorry, Mike, I moved you. Connected with case management and offered a solution that lasts longer because they weren't constrained by time. And avoids the really expensive uh, alternatives like hospitalization. Yes. Yes. The ER stays there seven days long, followed by the potential inpatient. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's basically law enforcement's only tool tool at this point, right? Yep. I got more questions, two at least. Mike, do you have anything? You- oh, I can go all day. No. <laughs> um, one I want to discuss is uh, red flag laws. It's been a really big thing for us in our field um, with regard to veterans, um, suicidal intervention. We all know – I don't – unless you're talking to somebody who's – totally disconnected from empirical reality, I don't think anybody thinks it's a good solution. That said, it can be improved. Um, One of the criticisms that I've heard is that law enforcement was never brought to the table to discuss the mechanism by which they're even supposed to execute such a thing. Right. What's been your, we've had one in Nevada now for just over a year. What's been your guys' experience in your department with this if, if you can even speak to it, because to my knowledge, we haven't we haven't had a red flag anywhere. Yeah, I, uh, I'm trying to think of a case where it actually has gone through. Um, I was having this discussion with a former most worker who's now at the VA. She's a clinician over there. Um, and she had asked me, is there something specifically on the books that says, say, you're put on a, an involuntary committal for mental health crisis? Do they take their guns right away was the question. And I did more research on it. And there's, in addition to the red flag, there's a way that people can go through um, the protection order process. They can seek a high-risk protection order that also requests, not necessarily guarantees, but requests the judge look at the circumstance and say, should firearms also be taken from this person, at least temporarily? Um, as far as whether that went through. So I sent her that info. I said, this is another way through. Um, I don't know if we've actually had an implemented red flag seizure, no more end of story. I couldn't speak to it. I'm sorry. I, and, and I guess where, where my head goes with this and the, the, the conversations I've had are there's Fourth Amendment implications that weren't considered. You, you've taken somebody's property without charging them with a crime mm-hmm. and we, we just can't do that. So I, is, that, is that a thing? Is there a workaround? I mean, like what, what's the conversations these days or are you even a part of them? Me, I'm, I haven't been, at least okay. to date. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Jake, when I was hanging out with the the, the the group from Metro, I watched them struggle trying to figure out how to do this thing too. And a lot of them were kind of like, you know, I don't want to throw anybody in the bus, but a lot of them threw their hands up and they're like, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to go do that. Right. Right. Which is, which makes, which makes the law ineffective. Right. 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 Well, like a lot of legislation, it's probably well-meaning, 
and decently conceived and poorly executed <laughs> because, yeah. because a lot of it isn't like a lot of long-term and little finite granular aspects of how does this actually take place are considered before the law gets passed. Well, yeah, because you get political um, aspirations interfering with the investigation of the implementation of it. Right. Um, so it's, it's, and I'm getting a little tired of the, the cheerleading of look what we did in the legislature reelect me because I'm keeping people safe. I'm improving your life. I'm whatever I'm doing. Uh, oops. Didn't think that through right away. Mm -hmm. And, um, red flag laws in particular, I think are strange because they're, they, it's like one was adopted and then they just carbon copied it the rest of the, through the rest of the States. Um, our legislature separate and apart from that has a tough time because they're, they're biennial. So they only meet every two years, unless there's a special session called, they only meet for 180 days. You, you have to cram yes. to get stuff in on that time. And it's it's very hard to to ferret things out and, and explore all the potential outcomes. It's even harder when you don't invite the potential uh, participants to the table. Sure. Or, or resident experts, people right. who One, could yeah. speak to it very well. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so the, uh, the other thing I had was um, it had to do with how your... I guess how you're you're balancing this role because you don't get to take and this is me just kind of sliding into therapy land mm. for the for the audience. We don't get to take off our licenses, mm -hmm. right? Um, we still have ethical issues and whatnot. We do get to set boundaries, which is nice. We can say, well, I, I can have a therapeutic conversation with somebody at church, and it's not treatment. Yeah. Uh, we didn't sign forms. We didn't consent. We didn't exchange money or compensation. Um, and I think that's a very good thing to do as human beings. We should be helping each other if we have a certain skill set. Yeah. Um, we're sometimes passed around as the shiny object in certain you know circles, barbecues, <laughs> uh, you know, family events, that kind of thing. Um, police are very much the same. Yeah. Uh, it's like, oh, oh, I got a question about like, is it is it really illegal if I go five miles an hour over the speed line? <laughs> right. Yes, it really is. And you can really get a ticket. Um, but it's like, you don't get to leave the, leave the uniform in the locker at work and then just stop being a cop. Everybody knows you're a cop. So they're going to pick your brain because you're, there, there's very few of you. There's very few of us. You happen to walk in both worlds. How do you balance that now? And like, especially among your peers. I use escapism. So when someone who has a cop question, I say, no, I'm a therapist. And when someone has a therapist <laughs> question, I say, no, I'm a cop. <laughs> escapism um, sounds like a David Blaine trick. <laughs> um, it, it has been, I will say this, people's opinions and um, some personal relationships have changed. Hmm. Because uh, people have certain beliefs, both about officers and about therapists. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> uh, thank you for going there because that's where I was going to go with this. Yeah, the number of times that people like it's my nickname to some people I've worked with for ten years. Now they're calling me doctor. I'm not a doctor, by the way. I'm barely yep. an intern. <laughs> Ethic ethical uh, requirement. We have to correct people when they do that. Right. But somebody else calls me Sigmund. Somebody else like <laughs> says, "Oh, hey, there's my therapist." In a joking way. I get that part. And it's also kind of okay because the very least, like you said, with your shirt, they're starting the conversation. They're right. acknowledging there's a therapist among their ranks, which I kind of try and use as a way to be like, I know, right? See, I'm not that scary. Also, Great. your therapist isn't, or your potential therapist probably isn't going to be scary. Um, so it, it's a lot of um, banter. <laughs> there's some back and forth, but re regarding balancing the roles themselves, 
It's been tough. And since he'll probably listen to this later or maybe listening through the wall, I get lots of supervision. (laughs) (laughs) Your supervisor may or may not work for Zephyr Wellness. Right. Um, It's not me. That would be illegal. We're not allowed to supervise our family. It's a lot of, I will say this, it's a lot of educating others. Because some people did it first and some. And we are back up. We are back up. Thanks for, uh, <laughs> that was a technical glitch. See, even the, even the machine didn't want to hear my stupid explanation for, <laughs> for why, why we're always analyzing like, each yeah. other. <laughs> it's like, nah, I'm out. I really appreciate how you, uh, explained why working with somebody who's a professional colleague is a bad idea. Mm. Um, especially in your world, in your work world. But I want to tell the audience that it's it, while it has been pushed into our heads through graduate school that we don't treat people we're close to, and I put that in air quotes too, um, sometimes people seek us out after they get to know us through like a church or work environment, hmm. and they want to see us because they trust us. Right. And it would be very harmful to tell them no based on our own insecurities. And that's not what you articulated. What you articulated was we could show up to the same incident and you would be more concerned about our relationship as a patient counselor than doing your job, which could create more harm right. for sure if you're distracted. Right. Um, and that's not what we want. But in the case of like a you know, if you're if you're listening to this and you're a clinician, you're a junior clinician, um, and you're you're worried about this, like ah, oh, this person who I know from church, you want to analyze it through a a, a a matrix of something articulable, like, am I related to you? That's almost <laughs> an immediate no. Yeah, too many um, people do counseling on their loved ones already. They, they do, and it's <laughs> yeah, that's totally inappropriate. Second one is, do we have such a close relationship that? If I start learning things about you, I could I, I could inadvertently breach your confidentiality by letting something slip that I learned in session right. at the at the barbecue, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you don't, and you just see that person on Sundays at church, and you don't have any relationship, and the, the only time you ever see them is there, um, you I would say you'd better treat them yeah. because they've asked. Um, but if you go, oh, I can't see them because we go to the same church. That, then why are you even in the profession? And uh, by way of trying to, you know, make up for that fact, because I, I absolutely see what you're saying. And that's my role in stigma reduction goes, um, not just like at the beginning, but kind of through the whole process. Mm-hmm. So by, by telling them, no, I can't be your therapist. But one of the things we have done as like a vast peer support network is find vetted clinicians, right. ones who are culturally competent yeah. and up to the point of being like, okay, let's call them together. Yeah. Much like making a, a CPS report when it's mandated, you, right. it'd be so much better to have the client do it with you. I would be like, okay, let's call together. Let's call our insurance. Let's see who Absolutely. our providers are. And you know, I can vouch for this person, but if you have a strange personality interaction with them and don't like them, okay, we'll find another one. You have permission to be the patient that you want and have the therapist you want. So I say, sorry, I can't treat you, but we'll find the right person for you. So staring awkwardly at Michael. <laughs> right. I, I I feel like if you could see this, it's like I'm looking down on you on a stage. <laughs> <laughs> All the world's a stage. I feel like Oz or something. <laughs> <laughs> you look like Oz with that background. 
There you go. No, I have a question about, um, and this kind of plays into just how officers are perceived, right? Like, do you have a relationship with your local media? Um, me in particular or the department? Uh, well, both. I, I, you know, both. I, do they ever contact you when there's a mental health? Mental health is a thing now, right? Like we didn't yeah. talk about it for years and now you're seeing commercials and, you know, we're starting to get there where there's even a movie. I, uh, Joe and I can't remember the name of the movie offhand, but um, it's like mental health officers that are driving around. It's a documentary on HBO. But like, um, you know, now that people have these issues and, and the media is starting to become a little savvy and understand things like they don't necessarily say crazy or maniac with a gun anymore. Like they, they, they have made efforts yeah. to not show that person. I'm just wondering if locally, you know, would they reach out to you and ask you about certain situations, you know, obviously because they're up on those things are always at the scene. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Twice I've been interviewed by Reno news and review. Um, okay. One was for services provided to the community and another was services that we're providing to our first responders. So, um, and then if, before COVID, you know, pre COVID back in the days, we all remember fondly. Um, I was set to do a story, I believe with Siobhan McAndrew about, um, uh, the Dabani ranch high school suicides and kind of like what was going on that year when everything was going down and what, how it could be addressed and kind of just educating kids about you know, clusters of suicides and just general mental health and them reaching out too, because God, teenage years are tough as well. There's a lot of cultural stigma. I think it's changing, but I, I remember when I was a teenager, there was stigma about having a weak mind, if you put it, or a weak character. Um, so yeah, occasionally. We do also have a, um, we're pretty lucky. He's, I think he's going to get promoted soon, but we have a public information officer, Travis Warren, who was a former officer who did our mobile outreach safety team, our, our clinical mental health team. So he knows a lot of that stuff as well and can provide some of the answers. And if he can't, he and I pair up and answer them together. That's awesome. Nice. I want to ask you about negotiations. Um, when I think people have a Hollywood version romanticized uh, idea of what a negotiator does. And there's certainly been lots of movies about it. Just tell us what it, what it involves, um, how it goes down. I, I, for example, was interested to find out when I was, te- I was teaching the Academy at one point and there was a, there was a call out and they were counting heads and I was like, how many, how many people do you need? And they're like, uh, at least six. And I was like, yeah. what? <laughs> so, and then, and then I got to explain to me like, there's, there's like the relay guy and the spotter and all this stuff. So t- tell us what that, really involves not from hollywood it's uh funny in one very fundamental way it's not unlike doing therapy right because you are getting very very real about somebody's about the concern that brought them to the point that they are literally having the worst of their worst days up to and including the thought that they think the only answer here is suicide it's their pain is or homicide or homicide yes Yeah, the, it's this belief they're so cornered by their circumstance, there's no other way out except through violence or the threat of it. Hmm. Um, I'm not saying that's like therapy. That's not usually what happens in therapy. <laughs> but the actual empathizing with people and looking them straight in the eye and being like, sometimes I won't have the answer and you and I need to work together to find a solution to it. We do our very best to put power back into their hands about the way the circumstance plays out um, because it is ultimately in their hands for the most part. Um, we, I know we do our absolute damnedest to try and not force any circumstances to not force any confrontations that don't need forcing now. Um, but it's, uh, 
it's an extremely rewarding and very emotionally taxing job. It seems to me that your skill set there is the exact same skill set that goes into any run-of-the-mill conversation on the job, on the street, at somebody's house, at the school. Yeah. Right? Yep. Meet them where they are. Listen, validate, explore options. Yield theory stuff. Yeah. And I, I guess my question is how hard is it when you when you're trying really hard not to lie, right? <laughs> you want to tell them the truth. Yeah. And they're like, you're just going to arrest me and take me to jail. You're like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> tell them the truth. Right. Yeah. But that isn't that, doesn't that seem contradictory where it's like, oh, there is no way out of here except <laughs> with us. We, I, I tell them the truth. Like you may be arrested for this. That's true. Mm-hmm. And you have control over what takes place through all of that. And it's also being arrested isn't the end of the world. You're going to get out someday. Um, yeah. And I sometimes use the extreme example, all crimes in the state of Nevada are bondable, even murder. Yeah. And it's it seems macabre and it seems like a dark answer, but it lets people in on perspective, which is what they're sorely lacking in that moment. Like there's, there's a day beyond today. Think about, and this is pretty particular with regard to folks who say, oh, you're just going to handcuff me and take me to the hospital for like suicidal individuals. Right, right. Um, I try and help them see the future aspect of it. Like, you get to talk to your kids or see your dog again. It, it might not be today, mm-hmm. but something brought you here, something made today different. Why not try and like undo or do something different next time in the future? So at least you have an option. It's, I've always hated that statement about the um, permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yeah. The whole thing about suicide, what I, or, or homicide or barricaded subject armed in a negotiation. I rephrase it to usually say like, I don't understand what you're personally going through. I like, I'm not experiencing it the way you are now. I do understand pain and I understand the desire to be out of it. This is just the only option that takes away all other options. Mm-hmm. So let's try something else. Cause there always are options and we always have choices. Right. Right. T- talk to me about the, or talk to the listening audience about the, how many people on the team and how the logistics mm-hmm. of it all work. Mm-hmm. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. It's uh it's definitely not as cool. We do have headsets, but I think they're from the eighties. We have like a big, a big throw phone, Again, a big box. Funding. <laughs> um, <laughs> the FBI has the really cool stuff. <laughs> um, so when you hear the 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 number six, you think, why would you need that many? It's just one guy talking to somebody. Usually, what they'll have, we want to have somebody who is actually engaging in the negotiation. That's the primary. Their whole job is literally not faking it, not putting on a show, but actually being involved with this person emotionally in that moment. Okay, spill your guts onto me. Let your emotional energy out. Fill me in on your problem. The more I know, the more I can help. They have a coach who's usually also listening, taking notes. Sometimes they're visible to the person they're talking to. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's unavoidable, Um, but making suggestions. And the coach receives information from people who are doing intelligence gathering. Like a lot of times, it might surprise a lot of people in the audience, but people don't want to talk to the police. <laughs> so when we say, hey, what's going on? What's your name? And we get the customary FU, we have to find out what their name is through other means. Mm. So when intelligence people will kind of give info to, say, the coach, they'll run that info to them. The coach goes, oh, this is John Smith who lives at 123 ABC Street, and he is married, and he has three kids, and this is where he works. Oh, but I guess he got laid off last week and started drinking, and that's what brought him up here. All extremely useful information. But the primary negotiator, if they're constantly, I'm see, I'm turning my face away from the mic. (laughs) If they're turning their head away all the time, you'd be like, hold on. 
they're showing, okay, well, this information is more important than you right now. Right, right, right. So they, they want to maintain focus on that. So you usually have two Intel people, somebody scribing and keeping track of, here's what we tried at this moment. Here are things about this person, identifying info, what really kind of gets their attention positively and negatively, things to avoid if, if it comes to it. Um, and then, so we scribe a couple Intel, uh, primary, uh, secondary. That's about five, six. Um, I'm trying to remember. If there's another role, I feel like I'm blanking right now, but it takes yeah, I mean, that, So in your ear, you're hearing John Smith, three kids, wife, laid off, been drinking lately. Like, how do you focus? <laughs> <laughs> that's and that's exactly why there's a secondary or a coach. So the okay. and, and they act as a very, very, very active filter for all that info because people are interested in trying to help somebody and then <laughs> they want to give that piece of info that they think is going to be the one that makes the difference for all the right reasons. But sometimes that information really has to be like selectively chosen because the the coach has the hardest job. They absolutely do because they're the ones listening with both ears um, and making suggestions too on the side, passing notes to like the primary negotiator, like consider this or just found this out and useful information here. Um, how do you do it? Practice? <laughs> we do yeah. we do train once a month as negotiators, and that's I think we should do it even more, but more training. More training, more training, more training. Yeah, exactly. Just start in the more training uh box. <laughs> Suggestion box. No, and so how do you and also too, do you have the ability to um so I think about when I, I've heard stories in the past. I know I have a friend that was SWAT and um, you know, he would tell some certain stories where he was there, you know in an armed situation, mm. he has his firearm pointed at John Smith, who's going through a crisis. Poor John. I know this guy's yeah, having John a bad week. Has a rough one. Um, but at the same, so I'm thinking about uh, this story and it, it's too long to get into, but basically the negotiator was handling the issue, but they're all sitting there pointing guns at each other. Yeah. Right. And then the negotiator actually, everything was fine. The guy was the, you know, the, de-escalation was happening and then eventually it came to the point where for some reason the negotiator was like hey why don't you put the firearm down at the table and that that triggered the man to to it something made his blood boil from that comment mm. right yeah. and i thought about that like how uncomfortable it is to try to negotiate with someone or try to get them to, to calm down well maybe some guys behind you are pointing guns at yeah. this person like do you have the power to be like back off guys or very much case by case, um, because so it depends. It depends <laughs> because <laughs> you're you're on a bit of an island when you're the primary, and that's that's for a purpose because you also like your phone is off unless you're calling them on it. Your radio is off. You are focused on them on purpose because just like inadvertently maybe letting something slip with a client if you have like a potential dual relationship, you don't want to hear or have them over here, oh, SWAT's moving in. And then you accidentally say, oh, SWAT's moving in and give right. away really <laughs> important safety information. Um, the old Ron Burgundy. Right. <laughs> it, it does depend. It's a, it's a strange role because supervisors get this pretty well. They recognize that people are called for a specialty to a special type of call. That's a weird one when you go, uh, Sarge, go away. <laughs> I need I need a minute here. <laughs> They're usually very very good about it, but um, you will have multiple people up to commander level, which is three four ranks above me, overseeing both sides of it, both the tactical side and the negotiation side, and they speak to each other and coordinate. I don't I can't remember ever having told somebody who's holding a rifle on someone, hey hey put it down, but um, I try and also communicate with them as much as possible, like. 
I'm getting response from them. Things are going well. We have made this progress because it's incredibly important that nobody makes that one literal fatal mistake. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answered your question. No, it does. It it helps me understand a little because I just always thought it was, you know, it's a tough job. And if, you know, it's not, I I assume nothing's like the movies, right? Like, you know, (laughs) the guy just like takes off the headset, everybody stand back and I'm going to go in there. (laughs) It's it's a lot colder than in the movies. I'll say that. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't want to hear the worst story because that's depressing. I want to hear the best outcome that you've ever had. Mm. Satisfying, most challenging, something, whatever pops into your head. It's, uh, hmm. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard There's to say. There's so many because I'm so good. <laughs> no, no. Oh, God. Um, let's see. What's the best one? I, I hate to sound corny, but they are very rewarding. And in that aspect, you kind of get like the same feeling when mm-hmm. it comes to it. So they all kind of, they kind of blend together with regard to that feeling of like victory and that feeling of, oh my God, thank Christ. Because it's a huge right. emotional relief for us too. I, th- I think <laughs> it wasn't satisfying with regard to how it was ultimately handled because we really didn't have any other choice at that point. But I will say one time I successfully negotiated somebody out twice. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, it was uh, armed and barricaded and had his wife inside with, uh, he had a knife and he'd been on like a meth runner for a week on end, huge age disparity. She ultimately had to be evacuated out the back door. I think she was 70 years old and we had to bring her over a fence in the snow. <laughs> That's why I say it's a lot colder than in the movies. Um, but we ultimately got him to come out the front door without the knife and talked him out through his, his, his apartment room window, got him outside he was nervous. He was paranoid. It was. It seemed pretty apparent that he was on methamphetamine, and he he saw where positioning of certain SWAT officers were and ran back inside. <laughs> and so I was like, "Oh no!" So had, that's when you ripped the headset off and said, "Guys, I got this." <laughs> oh, it in. <laughs> this was shortly after the implementation of body cams, and I think uh, very clearly on mine, I went, "God damn it." I was, and so I, I kind of had to take a moment too and take a breath and walk walk off and walk back because they said, okay, he's he's at the window again. We talked to him, talked him out twice. Ultimately had to be taken and subdued by force because he tried to run and fight somebody. But I think that's my my crown is talking somebody out of, of the apartment twice, negotiating him out successfully twice. <laughs> Same day. Do you, do you get two merit badges for that? Or I didn't is get it its it. own merit badge? No, I had to follow him to the hospital and take pictures of his injuries. I, I got hosed. Oh, man. <laughs> Does it ever become a situation where you, okay, so like I tell this story to friends of mine. It's always funny. I dated a girl in high school. I'm from Masbury Park, New Jersey. I was at her house one day. I saw all these pictures of her father, who was a cop with Bruce Springsteen. And I, I was like, how, do, how, does, how does he know Bruce so well? And she's like, it's really funny. When Bruce was young, he was like a, a rebel rouser, hellraiser. Mm. He arrested Bruce so many times. Oh, God. That they became friends. Oh my God. And, and, and it became this thing where she said that her father used to drive up when he'd get the call and he would just open the back door and Bruce would put himself <laughs> in the back of the car. <laughs> like, I thought it was just awesome because I was just like, ah, oh, Bruce, you know, he's a legend where I'm from, right? Nice yeah. guy. Um, but do you, do you ever, you ever get to that point where, uh, like, you know, the same person over and over again, you almost have this relationship where you're just like, you being okay, Tommy? Like, yes. staying out of trouble? <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, 
And it's those are pretty hard not to get frustrated with, in large part because you see, you know, because you're thinking more rationally that things can be different and better. Um, so you do develop a personal relationship. It, it helps sometimes because when you're the one person on scene, you get on, <laughs> you become on scene and go, John, John Smith again, John, one, two, what's three, going ABC on today, Street. man? <laughs> and you can kind of phrase it to be like, oh God, again, but also, okay, we can get through this. We have before. And that's where one of the most critical things, and I'll say in, in therapy, in law enforcement, in any profession, think with the future in mind. Because if you violate trust for a short-term gain, like telling somebody, no, you won't be arrested, and then 20 minutes later, they're forcibly arrested, you have sullied that person's conception of both negotiators and cops for probably life. And if they're in that circumstance, again, harder and harder and harder to build rapport or trust with them. So... Yeah, I, I've talked to some folks on first name basis. <laughs> you ever you ever pull your inner Jim Carrey from Liar Liar and you just go, "Stop breaking the law, <laughs> asshole!" No, I pulled the the inner Bob Newhart. The stop it, <laughs> yes, stop, stop it, or I'll bury you alive in a box. <laughs> if anybody hasn't seen that, go look up the Mad TV skit with Bob Newhart. It's great. We we watch five minute it. therapy. Yeah, we watch it in uh, we watch it in grad school. <laughs> All righty. Well, we need to get going, but Michael has a question for you. Yeah. And I asked this of all the first responders of Reno is uh <laughs> Lieutenant Dangle shorts always that short or does he ever wear? No. Nah. Well, <laughs> I have first, first hand, first hand, first leg experience with that. Um, for a year, right before I got into grad school, I was on our bike team and I wore shorts. I wore patrol shorts at work. So Yes. <laughs> I would rather have been comfortable, and yeah, we got jeered at, but I would much rather have been comfortable wearing body armor in 100 degrees pedaling a bicycle. So I don't care. <laughs> Look at my legs. It's all good. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> They're not no, that I, short. I, I, I've always been, uh, I've always thought about how awful it must be for Reno police to always have <laughs> like that. It's like when an Irish person walks in, they're like, yeah, after you lucky charms. It's like, yeah, I've never heard that joke before. <laughs> the best response to the Reno 911 thing I saw, he's a sergeant now. We were detectives together years ago. He would just feign complete ignorance. They'd be like, Reno 911. And he would act like very like, oh, what's that? And and they, it just takes the wind out of somebody's sails. And you're like, right. well, is this like, you mean like cops? Did they do cops here? It's like, no, it's a show. It's like, well, no, it's a, it's a comedy. Oh, okay. That sounds pretty cool. Uh, where can I find it? <laughs> just act like he had no idea. Just, it's just, yeah. Pulled That's awesome. Out of no, For anybody uh, who's, who's ever seen that show, by the way, it is definitely very much not set in Reno. There are palm <laughs> trees, which will never grow yeah. here. Hey, climate no. change. Never say never. Yeah, that's true. That's right. true. Maybe, maybe one of these days. No, seriously. Uh, I, I, how do you tend to your mental health? Mm. You're supposed to. Yeah, everyone probably looks at you as like you have the, all the answers all the time. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. You um, I write a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, it started. Um, with like, just, I started keeping a journal about like what was happening at work and that was pretty good. It was pretty helpful. And then kind of moved into just writing conceptually streams of consciousness stuff. And then, um, started doing like some just creative writing. Um, and that's catch as catch can whenever I'm able to, um, and little things here and there. Like I just taught myself at a whistle really loudly. I won't do it on here, but I'd always wanted to even since a kid. So little random things. Um, I study physics randomly, like on the side. I, I, I don't mean to say like, I understand physics. I just love learning about them. Um, and I, I narrate audiobooks on the side. That's a good little creative outlet. Nice. Yeah. 
when did you start doing the um, journaling and when do you do it? Mm. I started about, God, I think it was about four or five years into my career and maybe later. It was the second time I returned to patrol, so probably around five years. Um, and I would do it at the end of the day after a shift. So you, you made a regular, purposeful, uh, intentional attempt and you set aside time. It, it became a habit? Yeah. Okay. Because I, 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 I love writing, yeah. but I I really struggle with the mental um, block of needing big chunks of time. It sounds like you just it just becomes your workout. It's like, well, there's gym time, there's writing time. Yeah. Hmm. Give yourself five minutes and see where it goes. Because <laughs> yeah. it might end up being 50, but yeah, even point. five minutes, I think, helps to get something yeah, please, out. Please don't encourage him to start writing. He, he does enough. I'm trying to get him to stop talking. <laughs> I mean, he's out, he's out there training people for free. He's putting it. I don't, I don't need him distracted from any more WTTA. The amount of work that Jake puts into WTTA is insane. Um, your wife is a saint, Jake. <laughs> the, the same, the same wife that says, stop therapizing me. Uh, stop analyzing me. <laughs> no, she is. She is. Thanks. You're gonna make me blush. Um, and and I'm I alluded to it earlier, and I, I mentioned this before. Just make it all about me, because you know we're winding up our <laughs> show with our guest. But I'm going to make it all about me. But I think, in all seriousness, there's merit to this, and I think people should hear it. Um, if you have an opportunity to, to give back, you should. And for me, it would be really easy just to be like, "Zephyr Wellness generates my salary. I'm going to go golf, you know, three days a week, or whatever." <laughs> Um, I still have to live in this community and this community is full of hurt and pain and anger and despondency. And addiction. I don't like that. Yeah. All the things, addiction. Um, and, and I, I was, I grew up being bullied as a kid and I don't want my children to experience that. Yeah. And if we can heal people, then by God, we should. Yeah. Um, I don't want to see couples arguing in the line at the grocery store. I don't want to see parents yelling at their kids. I don't want to see my kids teased on the playground. And I damn sure don't want to see people taking their lives yes. prematurely. So could I be a lot more comfortable not doing all this stuff? Yeah. I don't need to be making videos and doing podcasts, but, um, w what good does that do my fellow man? You know? So, um, I appreciate you saying that it's not, um, I, I do, I enjoy it. It's not a chore for sure. But if you're listening to this and you're like, Oh, I just, I just don't know when you could find the time. You will. You'll find time if it, if it matters. You'll always find time. Like like journaling. You know, yeah. I just I need to find the time. Yep. So, well, it's uh, pretty awesome that you guys are in the same family too. Because man, it sounds like you're doing some amazing work out there as well. So, uh, <laughs> what does it say about a family that generates two therapists? <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of lawyers too. A lot actually. of lawyers. A lot of lawyers. <laughs> yeah, everybody's in healthcare and and law enforcement. And yep. I don't know what that says. That's for another it's show. Like a little society. <laughs> it, it says Catholic guilt. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, Brandon Casanelli, thank you very much. My pleasure. Um, thank you guys for having me. How, how do people reach you if you want to? I know you kind of want to be anonymous. Uh, <laughs> He's but, like, they don't. They don't. <laughs> but do, but seriously, like, if there's professionals listening, they want to hit you up, uh, pick your brain about how we implemented this thing here in Reno. Yeah. Um, there's so much more to talk about too. You, you're involved with like the city council and leadership and all this stuff. But like, if you can connect people, if mm -hmm. they're 
wanting to do something like this, how do they, how do they reach you? Easiest way, and nobody can escape email nowadays, mm-hmm. is my email. And that is, um, should I spell it out? Probably. Probably. <laughs> C as in Charles, A-S-S. They see each other. They <laughs> right. never, they see each other sends this. No. <laughs> uh, so it's C-A-S-S as in Sam, I-N as in Nora, E-L-L-I, and then my first initial, which is B as in boy. And that's at reno.gov. Casanelli B at reno.gov. Yep. Thanks for being on. Thanks and uh, this was good. It was really, really fun. I enjoyed learning. Um, I'm sure the audience did too, so... We're going to have to have more cops on down the road, I think. Let me know who you want me to uh, cajole into doing it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Awesome. On behalf of the Walk the Talk America family, on behalf of Arms Corps, which is our podcast sponsor, we thank them profusely. Go to armscore.com to find out more. Uh, check out their ammo. Check out their 1911s. And on behalf of the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That was fucking awesome.